I was walking home and I met a student of mine from the university and he just came up to me and said, you'll never believe what's going on. Have you seen the television? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, they've said that the Berlin Wall's come down, that they're letting everybody through. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Alastair took up a teaching post in Halle, East Germany, in August 1989 and continued to work in Halle for the next nine years, seeing the unravelling of the GDR firsthand. Now, if you like the podcast, you can help support us for the price of a couple of coffees a month. You'll be helping to cover the show's increasing costs and keep us on the air. Plus, you'll get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster too. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. So, back to today's episode. Alastair arrived just in time to see the early protests and the opening of the border with West Germany. He recounts the vendor with some great stories detailing the impact of the vendor and the effects of reunification. We welcome Alastair to our Cold War conversation. And then a friend of mine, also studying French and German, Cathy, um, came up to me one day just after finals and said, oh, I've just seen a notice on the notice board. And it says they're looking for English teachers. They called them lectors in those days. English teachers to teach at the Martin Luther University in, uh, University in Halle, uh, Halle an der Saale in East Germany. Um, and I thought, wow, that just sounds so exciting because you know, East Germany was part of the Eastern Bloc. It just sounded so exotic. I didn't know anybody who had been there. You know, you didn't see sort of travel programs in those days about going to countries in the Eastern Bloc. Um, it was a German-speaking country. It sounded like a good job for me. And so I said, yeah, why don't we do it? So we both applied. And we both right. So, so who put that advert up? I don't know. It must have gone through the German department at the university. There must have been some link there, but I'm not sure how. Right. And having never been to the Eastern Bloc, what were you expecting? I didn't know. And that was part of the excitement, really. You know, I was 22 at the time. Um, well, we both were. I, I don't really know what we were expecting because we were living in a time where there was no social media. Mm. Um, you saw what you saw on the three or four or channels of television and heard what you heard on the radio and read what you read in books. But that was always quite limited. So in a way, in a way it was going to somewhere exciting and, you know, somewhere you didn't really know much about. So how, how did you pre- prepare for going over there? Or, you know, how did you receive your travel information and all that stuff? That's, yeah, that's all quite interesting. We were just told to turn up. So um, I was down in Devon, where I was living at the time. Um, and my friend, Kathy, she was British, but her 
father was in the Royal Air Force and he was stationed in West Germany. So she was living in West Germany with her family at the time. So what I did is I made my way by coach from Plymouth to uh, did the ferry crossing to Belgium then through Belgium to West Germany, went to my friend's house. And she said, we'll just drive over in our car. I've just been told that we'll get a visa at the border with East Germany to enter. And that that must have been quite, I, I mean, I'm just wondering if her father was in the Royal Air Force, how her parents or particularly her father felt about her going over to <laughs> East Germany. I don't think they had a problem with it. Um, they had been to East Berlin before, um, so they sort of had an idea what it was like. I, I, I don't think that was a problem at the time, actually. Yeah. yeah. And we were just both really excited about going somewhere that we didn't really know about, and it was just a big adventure at the time. Yeah, no, I can I can understand um, that, <laughs> particularly during during that that period. So. Uh, presumably you arrived at Helmstadt, did you, at the border there? No, I think Helmstadt was where the – I'm trying to remember that. There was one place where the trains went over. Yeah, that was Helmstadt, I think. That was Helmstadt. And then there was one place where the cars went over to West Berlin. That may have been Helmstadt as well. I'm not quite sure. But we crossed the border at a place called Warta, which is near Eichenstadt. Um, and yes, we, we drove, so my friend had a car, it was quite amusing actually, because she had a Volkswagen Beetle and it was bright pink. And even in West Germany, it raised yeah. eyebrows. Yeah. So you weren't really uh, going to blend in, <clears throat> were you? <laughs> Not really. And so we went, we, we went to the border, the East German, well, the West Germans let us through the East German border guard said, sorry, what are you doing here? We haven't got any visas for you. So we said, but the university have told us, you know, that there are visas ready. So he called, I don't know who he called, but he called somebody in Halle at the university and they just said, let them through. So we got um, multiple entry visas in our passports and drove through. And immediately when you drove through, you saw the difference in the condition of of the roads. You know, there was barely any tarmac. So we were driving through this East German motorway in a bright pink Volkswagen Beetle. Um, there, there was a film at the time called Herbie, where I think it's an American film to do with a, a Volkswagen Beetle. And it had been shown in East Germany, obviously, because everybody was shouting Herbie. Oh, right. Yeah, uh, no, you know, I remember from, from, it, was, it was alive, wasn't it? The car yes. had some sort of life to it. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, yes, exactly. And there were even um, Soviet soldiers there in tanks who had obviously heard of it as well because they started shouting Herbie. <laughs> at us. And then we basically, we drove to Halle, which is now in the federal state of Saxony-Anhalt in East, Eastern Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, it was the evening we had a contact address where to go. It was the head of the English department of the university and they gave us some supper and then took us to our accommodation. Right. And what was your accommodation like? It was uh, a communist style 12 story building, sort of in the middle of a lot of like lower buildings. It was quite strange. It was a big sort of tall 
building that everybody could see for miles around. Uh, and we were given a room, and it was basically just a, a room, and it had a separate bathroom and toilet. Right. Um, and it was quite a strange building because the, the first four floors contained uh, foreigners, and the, the rest of the floors uh, contained pensioners who were there. They were East German pensioners. Um, so it was sort of like a self-contained old people's home, I suppose. Uh, and so we were there with a lot of foreigners who were either postgrad students or doing stuff that we were doing, like teaching at the university. And there were uh, French people. There was a Spaniard, there were two Italians, but there were also like North Koreans, Ethiopians, people from the Soviet Union, Cubans. It was a real mix. Right. So, um, as I said, the first four floors were full of foreigners. There was a variety of foreigners doing different things. There were postgrad students. There were um, people teaching their own language, people doing research, and they were from all over the place. Like, as I said, North Korea, the Soviet Union, but also Western Europe, um, Cuba. And we all sort of mixed in together and got to know each other quite well. So it was, it was a really, really nice experience. And when I when we got when we got to the place, we asked how much is the rent, and they said, "Oh, just don't worry about that." So we didn't pay rent at all. It's not bad. It's not bad. So on on so you're you're putting this accommodation on that first night. Can you describe what your your first day there was like? Can you remember that? I can't work the next day or whether we were given a few days just to acclimatize. But the uh, first day at work, we had to go to the English department. That must have been like the second or the third day. And we were introduced to colleagues. We were introduced, introduced to a few students. We were told what our duties were going to be. We were basically teaching 16 hours a week. English lessons to students who were uh, um, uh, learning English. And these were actually students. This was a strange thing. They were students who were learning to become teachers of English. Uh, but they were also learning about um, British and American culture. And it seemed slightly strange to us at the time because we were sort of teaching English and they were being taught English to become English teachers to people who would, as we thought in those days, would never be able to travel to any English-speaking country. Yeah. And how old were these students? They varied. The female students were like 18, 19, but the male students, they'd probably done two or three years of military service. So in some cases, they were older than us. Right, right. And... uh, I mean, I guess the question is like the question you said, how how would they be using their English if they could never um, leave the country? So they were, were they being trained as like, you know, working for perhaps Radio Berlin International or things like that? Did you get any indication as to what their ultimate role would be? I mean, it's difficult to say this with hindsight now, but I think that basically their main role was just to, be English teachers and to continue to teach English in the school so that English would 
still be a language was taught. Mm. I mean, there were some countries in the old Eastern Bloc where they stopped teaching English, but Germany wasn't, East Germany wasn't one of those places, obviously. So they obviously saw English as an important um, language and also an important cultural um, part of their curriculum, particularly like, like through Shakespeare, Jane Eyre, literature, that sort of stuff. But they also saw it, I think, as an important language in the socialist movement as well, because they knew there were socialist movements, you know, in the UK, in the USA, in other parts of the English-speaking world, certainly in other parts of the Commonwealth. And so it was not a language that was necessarily capitalist and opposed to socialism. It was a useful language. Yeah. Basically. And I and I guess there's that English connection with Marx and Engels and their time in Manchester and working on the Communist Manifesto and that, you know, there's a historical yes. line there as well. Um the the other English teachers that were there had had some of them been there some time or mm-hmm. or not? No. There had obviously been a program going with the university for teachers to work one or two years. I mean, there were only two of us at the time. I think the third one joined us, but that was after the revolution. Uh, but there had been two previous to us, and I think the the exchange program had been going on since the 60s, but I don't know many details of that. But there was an association of similar English teachers who were working at other universities. So there were people in Leipzig, there were people in Dresden, there were people in Berlin, I think also Rostock. Because there was some association where we met every couple of months and we met in, you know, either in Halle or Leipzig or in Berlin and sort of exchanged ideas. But I seem to remember there are only about like 20 of us in the whole country. Right. Right. So there there weren't many people, any English or any English people there that had chosen to live (laughs) in the GDR. Oh, oh, there were. There were, yes. Um, There were people who had gone over in the 1950s people who were committed communists mm-hmm. um, who had married people um, in East Germany. I know there was one woman who married somebody in the Politburo in East Germany. And then unfortunately he defected to the West, but she stayed where she was because she was still a committed communist. Um, but there there, there were people. Can you, can you remember the name of him? Yes, I can. I remember her name, uh, Diana Lurzer. L, so she obviously took his name, but L-O-Umlaut-S-E-R. Yeah. And I think I Googled her and found something out about her once. But okay. I'll leave, I'll, that, I'll leave I'll, that to you. I'll look, I'll look that up. That sounds like quite an interesting story. Yeah, we, we did meet her. I mean, I doubt that she's alive now, but you know, yeah. I did meet her once, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and... and what were these people like that had been there since the 1950s? They they still believed in the the socialist project at that time? I think what you've got to understand at that time is that August 1989 was already in flux. So there had already the Hungarians had already opened the borders to the West. So there were people in East Germany who traveled south to Hungary, which they could then do without a visa. 
and then just went, you know, west into Austria and defected. Mm. If you can call it defection, then it was just like they just traveled basically out of the country. Um, and that was when we were arriving. And then at the time, I can't remember exactly what was August or September, but there was a big flux of East Germans who went into Czechoslovakia and claimed asylum at the West German universe, uh, West German embassy in Prague. Yeah. Uh, and they camped out on the lawn that, you know, this is now historical fact. And, um, and then the authorities closed. Well, they, the only place that East Germans could visit at that time without a visa was Czechoslovakia. Uh, and then I distinctly remember watching television and saying in about September, October, maybe that they had to get a visa in order to be able to travel to Czechoslovakia. Um, and these were really the dying days of the communist period, even though you may not have seen it at the time, but in, in retrospect, you can see it because there, there were really times of, of great uncertainty. And so I think those British people who had come out in the fifties or sixties, they were feeling that too. And they, everybody was sort of thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen next? Yeah. When we were in Halle and there were demonstrations in Halle from a, a, a democratic organization. I should have researched this before. I can't remember their name, but was it Noise Forum? Exactly, Noise Forum. Forum. Okay. And they were staging sort of candlelit processions. And I said to my friend, because we'd seen this obviously on West Germany, I said to my friend, why don't why do we just go down to the center and see what's happening? So we went down to the center um, of an evening uh, and we saw the candlelit processions going up the street and then we went to the main market hall and it was all breaking up and you can see that there were sort of secret police Stasi people taking people away. And then we got quite worried because we didn't have our passports with us and we said, well, we'll just go home, you know, <laughs> we don't want to get yeah. involved in this. Um, and you have to remember at those times we could watch West German television and East German t television freely in our rooms because there was no way that the state could block it at yeah. those times. So you'd go home in the evening and you you would probably watch the West German television news first because that's where all the action was. But then it was really interesting because you switch over to the East German yeah. television and see what yeah. their interpretation was. Yeah, and that, that may well have been where they managed to see Herbie as well. They may have indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, you mentioned the, the the Stasi there, and you know, the, the, there's obviously that that's one of the sort of main things that people know or not know, but have heard about East Germany. Did you feel that you were under any form of surveillance when you were <laughs> when you were there? I was. 22 years old, still quite naive. Um, I probably, I wouldn't know, know a Stasi agent if I saw them, you know, they were dressed up as agents or anything like that. I mean, we did hear rumours that there was a student in every class that we had who was a Stasi agent. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing 
is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Yeah, we, uh, which... we didn't really worry about it at all or think about it very much. You know, in, in a way, it was a bit of a joke, you know, trying to think, oh, who's the star agent in your class? And that sort of thing, you know, that's the, the, the naivety of youth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, as you say, with hindsight, we now, though, the sort of percentage of the... <clears throat> you know, uh, the IMs, the uh, unofficial informers. So that, that may well have been the, uh, the the truth, that there was probably more than one in um, in each, cl- each class potentially. Well, one thing was that I was telling you about the sort of block that we lived in, the residential block, um, after the, as they call it, the vendor in East Germany, sort of the revolution, the turning point. They published in the newspapers all the places or offices or rooms where the unofficial uh, agents were operating from. And one of them at least was in a room in our block. Right. And I am sure that I have a a Stasi file somewhere, but I doubt it says anything interesting at all. Well, they never... he, went, he went to the butchers and bought some sausages on a Monday. Yeah, but that would be in. It was obviously one of the questions I was going to ask. Aren't you intrigued to uh, just see how dull it is? There's a process that you have to go through, and to be quite honest, it's interesting. I'm not quite sure why I wasn't interested in it. I, I know I heard stories of people. And friends, you know, who I lived with uh, in East Germany, who had gone and seen their Stasi files and had been quite shocked to find out which people had been basically spying on them, people who they thought were friends, people who they thought they could trust. Um, But I suppose... I thought because they, the people I knew, they they were part of that society that had gone back years and we had only just arrived. And then very soon after we arrived, the revolution came. That I didn't feel that I could learn really anything of interest and also I didn't really want to learn anything unpleasant. I don't yeah. know. Maybe, maybe now I might take a different position on it. I don't know. Yeah. No, I can I can understand that. So you were fearful of finding out that perhaps the people who you considered friends were informing on your movements, however dull they might have been. Yeah. I mean, now I might look back on it and think, oh, that's really amazing <laughs> or really yeah. funny or something. But at the yeah. time, it felt a little bit unpleasant. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you'd know what you did on Tuesday, the 2nd of yeah. August. Uh, <laughs> that sort of thing, yeah. Um, Okay. Okay. No, that that's that's really interesting. And and how did you find Haller as a 
city because it's interesting you know talking to somebody who who wasn't in berlin because berlin was obviously of a a different feel to it but Halle was you know out in the provinces and and away from berlin what what was that like at that time Halle's now an absolutely beautiful city it's a historic city um to give a bit of context, uh, George Friedrich Handel, the famous composer, was born there. There's the Handel Festival every year. Um, during the Second World War, Halle was very fortunate in that a lot of the buildings weren't destroyed by Allied bombers. Um, and so they kept a lot of the historical center of Halle. If you go there now, it's just amazing how they've restored it. Um, when we went there, it was a different story. I mean, you could still see all the beautiful structures and everything, but Halle was a center of the chemical industry. Um, brown coal was one of the major exports and also the stuff that they use for heating everywhere in the, in the older buildings. Yeah. It was tremendously polluting. Uh, and it just sort of you know, polluted the facades of all the old buildings. Uh, they weren't really properly maintained. It was, it was very, very sad. I, I remember, because I suffered all my life sort of from bronchitis and tonsillitis, getting that on a regular basis just through the fumes, especially in the winter, when the sort of fumes clung in the, in the sort of winter cold. Um, but it was a really, really interesting place to go to and a really, really historical place and actually through my work now I went back in 2012 um, and I worked on a project there in Halle and it was absolutely fantastic to be back there working for a different organization but in the place where I had been so long ago. That must have been quite bizarre experience. It, it was but very very positive yeah. to see how the whole place had developed. Yeah yeah you you mentioned the uh, the demonstration earlier when when did you first you know have an indication of of un of unrest there the un i think the unrest had started before we arrived in august mm. 1989 um i do remember a leaflet that we got i mean you know in those days you didn't you could you couldn't print anything you know unless you were in a in an official printing house. So people used to copy things. There were no photocopiers. So they were copied onto this sort of wax-like carbon paper. So we, we did get messages from the new forum, the Neues Forum, as you mentioned earlier, posted saying that they wanted, you know, a new democratic Germany. I don't know. At, those, at that time, they weren't calling at all for anything like German reunification. That wasn't even on the table. It wasn't even thought about. It was, we just want a, uh, a new democracy for our East Germany. Mm. So, so we, we used to get, pay, yeah, we used to get leaflets um, in, 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 the, in the letterboxes. Yeah, because no Noyes Forum were proposing sort of like a third way that was neither capitalism yes. or state communism. Yes, um, which was steamrolled out of the way. But, it, you know, yeah. it, it may seem naive now, but it wasn't at the time. No, no, no. Absolutely not. Um, and how, when and where were you when you 
first heard about the opening of the wall in Berlin? Okay, now this is interesting because one of the things I wanted to do when I went to East Germany was to learn Russian because I'd always wanted to learn it. I never had the opportunity at school. I didn't have the opportunity at university in London. So I thought, oh, if, if I'm going to East Germany, then surely there must be ways that I can learn Russian there. So I hooked into the local um, evening school. It was a school, you know, a regular state school that offered uh, classes for adults in the evening. And I found lots of Russian courses there. So I just signed up to a Russian course. Uh, and I went there, and I think there were about 15 of us in the class, you know, 14 East Germans and me. There was a German teacher who taught Russian. Um, we, it was really interesting to talk to some of the others because they could not understand why a British person would be in East Germany learning Russian of an evening <laughs> yeah, they must have definitely uh, <laughs> thought you were a card-carrying member of... <laughs> <laughs> well, they thought I was something. Anyway, and there was there was one elderly man there. He was so nice. And he came up to me after the first lesson and spoke a little bit of English. Actually, you know, I, I do speak fluent German, but he spoke English. He'd been a prisoner of war in the Second World War in Yorkshire. And he'd had the time of his life, he said, <laughs> uh, at this prisoner of war camp in Yorkshire. Oh, wow. Um, and there was a picture in the classroom of Erich Honecker, then um, leader of the SED, on the wall, as there was in every classroom. Mm. Um, and so I must have gone to these Russian lessons once or twice a week for about six weeks. And then maybe in the seventh week, I was walking home and I met a student of mine from the university. And he just came up to me and said, you'll never believe what's going on. Have you seen the television? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, they've said that the Berlin Wall's come down, that they're letting everybody through. So you know, rushed home to the television and then saw, saw all the news uh, about what was happening. And then I went back to my Russian class the following week and the portrait of Erich Honecker had disappeared. And was Egon Krentz in its place? No, it wasn't. Uh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Things were moving at such a pace then. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. It, um, there was and, no logical order to it, you know. Yeah. And what what was the next day like in Halle after that news of <clears throat> the, the Berlin Wall opening? All I remember is lots of people on the trams with huge bottles of champagne singing. That's all I remember. Right. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, did you notice the town emptying at weekends while people were crossing the border? Or I didn't notice it physically. We did know that there were lots and lots of people getting on the trains, um, going from Halle to East Berlin and crossing, obviously, to West Berlin. Yeah. And people were telling me, oh, God, you know, that people are thronging into the trains, throwing their children through the windows, just getting up there and to enjoy the atmosphere. But um, I, I, I didn't notice things emptying that much. But, you know, you misremember these things after such a long time. It's yeah, no, years ago, no I'm, I'm, asking, <laughs> I'm asking you some yeah. tricky questions here, but it, it's just interesting just trying to build that, that visual image for, for the listener. I I mean, I only realized, 
sort of last month, really, God, this was 30 years ago that we actually crossed the border into East Germany. It seems such such a long time ago, but I remember so much of it. It's very, very interesting how the memory works. Yeah. I mean, what can you remember what the first things you really saw changing in East Germany after after that moment? You know, because you, you talked about Neues Forum, um, but did you start to see, you know, some of the Western political parties put, putting out leaflets and stuff? I guess it was still a bit too early because East Germany was still in existence in that, certainly, you know, up until uh, the early months of 1990 the state machinery was sort of still in existence. Yeah, of course, East Germany existed for another year yeah. after that. Um, also, interestingly, they did have some of the sister parties in East Germany. So there was a Christian Democratic Union, and there may have been, I, I don't know, but there may have been like a federal party as well, but they were all basically you know, subjugated to the, the SED. Yeah. So those, so the structures of those parties did exist. And so I suppose what happened when um, reunification came that the parties just, the parties in West Germany just looked to their sister parties in East Germany and built up their structures in that way. So there were sort of rudimentary structures to those parties in East Germany already. Yeah, yeah. And did, did you notice the shops changing? Yes. Um, the first thing, I mean, I yeah, have to be careful here about the sequencing because we didn't have currency union. I can't actually remember when the currency union happened. I think it was a different date from the actual reunification of Germany, probably before then. Yeah, I think but right. There, there was a point where in inverted commas, Western goods started to appear in some of the bigger shopping centers. So I remember going to one where you could get like kiwi fruit and bananas and, you know, various other things, but you could only buy them for West Marks. Couldn't right. buy them for East Marks. Uh, but, but there had all always existed in East Germany inter shops which were shops that sold Western goods for hard currency. Yeah, that's Even right. before 1989, because I remember we didn't have very many West Marks, but when we arrived in August 1989, there were some, you know, things that we missed. So we went to an intershop with our uh, few West Marks and bought some soft toilet paper and a Coca-Cola. Yeah, I, re I remember the one at Friedrichstrasse Station in, um, in Berlin, um, yeah, that you could that you could travel to without you know having to go through uh, East German yes. uh, controls. Um, yes. I was going to ask you that about you know life there because you know you you're used to being able to go to your I don't know nearest Boots or Tesco and getting deodorant and all sorts of things like that. What, did you find it difficult to get certain items that you were used to from living in the UK or West Germany? Marmite. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my my parents did send over, and I think my friends' parents as well, they sent over a little package. But it's things like, you know, Marmite, which actually isn't very easy to get today where I am in Slovakia as well, you know, in 2019. So yeah. that's not a big thing. But I, I don't remember, 
I don't remember any huge shortages of things that I could buy and that we can adapt to in some way. Yeah. I think I think it's difficult for some people in the in the present day to imagine what life was like then because even in the UK there wasn't a huge amount of choice around yes. cer- certain items and it it wasn't sort of the, the the plethora of stuff that you see in supermarkets um nowadays so adjusting to living in east germany perhaps wasn't the the transition people would expect it to be no actually that's a really important point um and it's something i noticed recently because there are now in i think mainly in what's used to be east germany there are now these gdr museums where they have displayed you know artifacts and things that you could buy in east germany at that time and it looks sort of a bit primitive but you sort of forget that actually in west germany and in the uk as you say things were not that much better really then no no and I, not not Go on. So carry, carry on. No, I was going to say, I mean, I've been to the um, the GDR Museum in, in Berlin and they've got that representation yeah. of an East German living room. And looking yes. at that, that's not hugely different to what my parents' living room looked like in the 1970s and 80s. Yeah, absolutely. So it's all quite relative and you have to be, I think, a bit careful in making these comparisons, you know, especially with, with you know, generations who didn't even know that era. Yeah, yeah. Uh, after the the wall opened, um, did you speak to those people we mentioned earlier who'd come over in the pursuit of communism in the 1950s and 60s? Not really. I think they all just took it as, you know, this was the next stage of history. Mm. I, don't, I don't know what they felt inside about it and you know they were they were in berlin and we didn't really have much contact with them so yeah oh actually that's not true that's not true i do know one person who um is british who had been there at least since the 1980s and there is a a generation of people who went through the turning point in 1989. They thought everything was okay as they went along, but nowadays they look back at it with a lot of nostalgia and they were distressed by the fact that they perceived that people in the West, West Germany or wherever, was saying that everything that had been in the East was wrong and bad and inferior. And they're still upset about that because they don't regard it as that. Yeah, and I think, you know, through through the interviews that I've done, I think that, that that's quite a common theme that a, a belief amongst people who lived in, in East Germany that not, everything was was bad there were obviously you know um big problems but you know the the one that always comes up is the um you know child care provision and yes and you know the fact like there was there was no unemployment but i think you know you've also got to look at look at it in mm-hmm. the way that the 
the east the east german economy just wasn't sustainable in the way that it was it was working at that that time and even if the wall hadn't have opened the the state itself probably would have gone uh bankrupt in in some shape or form in in pretty short order probably yeah i think you're right but i i think those people also think that because people in the west say those things that they think their whole past is being called into question like even you know the relationships that they had their whole society was somehow inferior and you know i can i can sort of understand it even though i understand it from a political and economic point of view but i can understand it from a sociological point of view in that they you know my whole childhood and my whole life as a teenager meant nothing almost you know and that's yeah. not true yeah yeah and that, i think you i think you're right there i mean that that's a theme that i i probably hear the most is is the view of a very idyllic simplistic in the nicest sort of way childhood of of a lot of people where there was no you know stress or 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 strain or or pressures um and did you see a, a change of mood towards reunification? Because obviously we spoke earlier about Neues Forum being there, and I asked you about the, the Western political parties. Have, have you any fear as to how quickly that, that mood appeared to change? Uh, very quickly. It's difficult to say now that with this much distance in time. Um, what One thing I... Do remember, and it's more on a sort of personal, professional level rather than a political level, was that I was working at a university, and obviously um, the people who were working or allowed to work at the university obviously had to either had particular particular um, political allegiances or pretended to have or were forced to have political allegiances. And be members of the party, and then when that system broke down, that fractured, and there were a lot of arguments between colleagues about historical um, problems that they had had. For example, there was there used to be something called the Marxism-Leninism department which every student all over the GDR had to attend lessons in. And a professor from Marxism and Leninism was transferred into the English department because basically the Marxism Leninism department was dissolved. And, you know, his English wasn't very good and he probably wasn't qualified. And a lot of his, the, the colleagues in the English department saying, why on earth are you here? Look at what you're, you know, look at your past. What are you doing? Um, I remember one female colleague accusing another female colleague of um, causing her to have a miscarriage because of the way that she had treated her in the past. And all these things bubbled up and almost you know, exploded, erupted um, in staff meetings, which was quite difficult for us to digest because we hadn't sort of grown up in the system and we were quite young. Yeah, and weren't really used to this kind of office politics thing, but it, it was quite stark. I have to remember people 
you know, telling tales about each other and what they've done in the past and what they thought about each other and people who thought got on as colleagues before didn't get on as colleagues and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So once that that pretense of loyalty to the party and government disappeared, then all the antagonisms and rivalries sort of uh, came to the surface. It it was sort of a microcosm of what happened to the state, if you like, or any state like that, where you try to control people and then that breaks out and that breaks out at a state level, but also at institutional level, probably even regional level, probably even village level, you know. Yeah, that's what yeah. happens. And presumably, the Marxism Leninism department dissolved pretty soon after <laughs> the opening of the war, within a month or so. Was it was it quite quick yeah, or not? I don't remember exactly when, but I really don't think you know it wasn't taken seriously during communism. So yeah, I think it was probably the first one to go. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, and. How long were you there for? Were you there through to reunification? Yeah, I was actually there nine years. I mean, obviously, until 1998, obviously, it wasn't the GDR anymore, but I was there from August August 1998 to, what, nine years later. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible because you've seen with your own eyes the, uh, well, uh, amazing piece of history there happening in front of your eyes, the you know, the yeah. dissolution of East Germany, the reunification of Germany and the problems and issues after that in trying to uh, merge those two countries together. Yeah, I mean, if I try and sum it up, you know, as I say again, I was young, um, I wasn't well-travelled, um, it was a different time in 1989. It's, yeah, it's impossible to overestimate the effect that things like social media are having today, which we never even had then. I mean, it's quite a sort of thought experiment to think, what if we did have social media back then? But, well, it um, would have made the Stasi's job a lot easier, I'm sure. <laughs> well, or maybe not, actually. It might have made the dissidents' uh, job easier. But Yeah, it was yeah no, just, you're right. It's just, it was a momentous time. And I can look back at that now, 30 years later, and I still see it as that. But even at the time, we saw it as momentous because, and we were living right in the middle of it. You know, it wasn't only East Germany. We we traveled to Czechoslovakia, which went in November. uh, And I've, you know, I've lived in, I lived in the Czech Republic for eight years. I've lived in Slovakia for four years. I know them very well. Then it went on to Romania uh, in December of that year, and that was mm. all over the news as well, and that was even more bloody. It was just such a tumultuous time. It was tumultuous. It was dramatic, but it was also full of hope, really, for Europe, because Europe was coming back together after over 45 years. And it, it, I would say, in a way, it was a very, very optimistic time. Yes, I, I, I think you're right. There was a lot of hope then that the, those old international rivalries would, would disappear, particularly between us and Russia, or Soviet Union as it was still yes. then. Um, but uh, as present news uh, gives testimony that uh, hasn't 
necessarily um happened there in in that that period around you know with the with the move towards um reunification i mean and and after how did you have any sort of experience of like you know the the issues where somebody would come back from the west to claim their house or or anything like that or were you aware of any of your colleagues where they were having to move out because somebody had come back to claim a property no i wasn't aware of any of that i've become more aware of that in more recent years <coughs> um in well in czechoslovakia mainly or in the czech republic and slovakia i should say um i was i wasn't really aware of that i at that age i didn't really know what was going on you know it's difficult to sort of think if you if you come from the west if you come from the uk which is a big sort of property owning society and then you go to a place where basically in the 1940s all the property had been expropriated and then suddenly in 1899 they have to return it to whoever the owners or the the, the heirs of the owners were what that process was the only thing i remember well is the properties in Halle, but also in Berlin. We have friends in Berlin um, who just basically squatted in properties that were empty and the state tolerated it. And then eventually they were either able to own the properties or, you know, pay a rent for the properties to landlords who returned. It was a very, very messy and complicated process. Yes, absolutely. And that's why I was was just interested to... Um, you know, hear, hear what your experiences were were there. Um, are the of the your time around? Just looking at the time around the vendor, what what would you say was your your most abiding memory of that period? One of them was, as I had already explained, coming from my Russian lesson, yeah. and you know, in the dark, in the smog. <laughs> a student of mine emerged from the smog sort of saying, have you seen what's happening on the television? Go home and have a look. Mm. Um, that was, that, that's something I really, really remember. Yeah. Um, I, I'd say that's my most abiding memory. And then going home to the television and saying, this can't be true because <laughs> it was politi- political orthodoxy for 45 years that there were two separate states and that the wall was there. And in one of my English lessons, again, I keep saying that I'm completely naive, but I was. In my one of my first English lessons, I asked my students, you know, East German students studying to be English teachers, do you think East and West Berlin will ever be reunited? And there was silence. I bet there was. The f- I bet there the was. Floor. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, it's just something to talk about, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then wow. to go home on the and see, you know, probably even like a couple of weeks later, to see it on the television and go, ah, there you go, <laughs> it's happened. Uh, those are my most abiding memories, I think. And are you are you still in touch with any anybody who you made friends with during those <clears throat> days in East Germany? Well, I guess you yeah. were there. I mean, you were there for. Through till ninety eight, I think you said nine nine years. Yes, yeah. So, did you see 
people who were supporters of the regime changing and adopting uh, Western values and and things like that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it happened from, I don't want to say overnight, but, you know, it happened very, very soon um, that people were, were sort of released, basically, from being under the the communist regime to be able to say what they think, to be able to go to, you know, films that weren't controlled by the regime, to attend forums, to discuss. Um, it, it was sort of an explosion of, 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 of new ideas, if you see what I mean. There, there was, interestingly, I'm just remembering now, in Halle, um, my friend and I, we made another friend called Marjorie, who was, she'd been there since 1986, and she was part of a group of people who liked, they, they liked to call themselves the English Circle in Halle. And there were about eight or nine of them. And they used to meet, I can't remember, every month or every two weeks. And they used we used to discuss things in English and they liked us to come along. And as I said, everything was discussed in English, but it was like a sort of free thinking circle where we would discuss things that not particularly revolutionary, but things that weren't necessarily sanctioned by the state. <clears throat> Maybe, you know, novels that were new or things like that. It was quite an interesting interesting little society and then when the, the vendor came they just let rip and talked about what they wanted right right <laughs> no it's it's it, it is difficult to imagine that you know where you you you've been living and brought up in a state with certain strictures and you know ways of working and then almost overnight your nation and your state has just disappeared and you've got to adapt to a whole new way of life that you've never mm. been trained for or taught for. I mean, you hear stories of, you know, the West German insurance salesman coming over and selling East Germans policies that they didn't need and, and things like that. Yeah. And that, that must've been a, such a, a shock and, a, and an adjustment as well as losing your job as well, potentially. Yes. Uh, with the collapse of all the industries there. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to sort of, um, it's hard to sort of imagine, you know, from where we're, where we've come from. Um, but you had your life regulated in, in many ways. So you had your working hours, you had a job, you, um, even had, um, holidays where you all went, on public holidays with your colleagues uh, during August and September or whenever it was. Um, there were public um, societies that you could go to. There was sort of like no private life, and that's what they wanted. That's what the regime wanted uh, for people not to have their private lives. Obviously, people got round it in their own ways. But then, and, and then to have, you know, no unemployment, you had your job secured. And then for that to collapse 
was quite traumatic. And I'm definitely not saying that it was the sunlit uplands after 1989, because it wasn't for many people at all. It was very traumatic for many people and mm. probably still is. Yeah. Yeah. How, how did Hallas celebrate reunification? Was there a big party or was it muted? I can't remember, to be honest. I think there were always fireworks in Halle because Halle, as I said, was the birthplace of Handel, who wrote the firework music. <laughs> and there were the Handel, it was called Handel Festspieler, so the Handel Festival uh, concerts uh, that were held. And they were held in a, like a valley and they used to play the firework music and all the fireworks would go up in the air. So there's probably something like that going on. Right, right. Presumably overnight, at some point, the police uniforms changed into the style of the West German police and things like you know. I, the... I was actually thinking about that about a couple of hours ago because when we arrived in East Germany, I think maybe even on the first or the second day, we were taken by somebody from the university department because we had to register at the, I suppose you call the foreigners police. Um, and there was a lady and she had the green um, people's police uniform, the folks police, as they called them, as all the police had. She was very stern. She took our names. She took our eye color. She took our dates of birth, the color of our hair, and saw our visas and then registered us, put a stamp in our books and gave us our books and sent us away. And then after the vendor, I can't remember why, but for some reason we had to go back and visit the same police station. And it was the same lady and she was in civilian clothes. She was in a sort of flowery shirt um, with a big smile on her face. And she asked me, do you have the same eye color as you did four weeks ago? And I just opened my eyes and looked at her and she laughed. And it was just such a change you know, among the officials um, from, from a few months ago. It was really funny. That's a great story. That that is that is a really interesting interesting story because I mean you you always heard that like service in East German restaurants was really poor. Yeah. Um, did that change, or or did it? <laughs> did it Very rain? slowly, actually. <laughs> <clears throat> Very slowly. The the worst thing they had in East Germany was, and this I've heard this from people from other former communist countries, like from Czechoslovakia and Poland, who visited East Germany, the worst thing they had was even in the top-class restaurants, you'd, you'd eat your meal, and it would be like in the Inter Hotel, you know, somewhere really posh, and you'd finish it, and you might have some leftovers that you hadn't eaten, and then the waiter would come around with a trolley, which had a big hood on it, and he would scrape all the leftovers into this hood, in front of you and then close it and then move on. It was absolutely horrible. Um, but services changed quite slowly, I would say. Is, is there anything else or any other anecdotes <laughs> that you can think of that, that you think are, are, are interesting? I, I really did like the one with the, um, the female police officer. But are, are there any other sort of like little snapshots or vignettes of 
of your experience? I, I suppose the one thing, I mean, it's more a philosophical point, really, but as I said, um, you know, when I grew up, um, I didn't know anybody who'd been to any of the Eastern Bloc countries, even though it was the same continent as us, you know, it was Europe, but you, you didn't see any programs about it apart from, you know, stuff that you saw in the news about the Soviet Union. You didn't really know about what the people were like there. But when I went there, and this is a, a quote that's been doing the rounds recently, you know, political discourse in the UK. Um, there really is more of us that brings together, that brings us together than divides us. And I just found that people were basically the same as us. They were just living in different circumstances and they had the same you know, experiences and joys and sadnesses and desires and aspirations that all of us had. Um, and that was actually a really heartening experience. If you like what you're hearing, sign up to our email list at coldwarconversations.com. We have further photos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get that Cold War Conversations coaster and help keep us on the air, head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate, or again, click on the link in your podcast app. If you can't wait for the next episode, visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners like yourselves continue the Cold War conversation. Just search Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.